I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we return to the topic of Israeli politics in light of the incoming Netanyahu government and the rise of the Israeli far right. In the second segment of the show, Dr. Stephen Zunis returns to discuss how we can combat anti-Semitism in the United States while also addressing Israeli human rights violations against the Palestinians. But first, journalist Abe Silberstein, who has contributed to such publications as Heretz and Jewish Currents, joins us to offer a Jewish-American progressive perspective on the incoming Netanyahu government, the Israeli far-right, Morton Klein and the Zionist Organization of America, Peter Beinart and Religious Zionism, taking a human rights-centric approach to Israel-Palestine, and much, much more. So with that in mind, let's get right to it with Abe Silberstein. Welcome to Parallax Views, Abe Silberstein, who has written for a number of publications, Tourette's, uh, War on the Rocks, and many others. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good, good. I, I wanted to have you on because uh, I've been reading your Twitter for uh, probably a few years now. Um, and, you know, I talk a lot on this show about Israel and, and Palestine. And I think you have some very interesting takes on the uh, issues facing Israel right now and and Palestinians. So if you could, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background and how you came to write about topics related to the Middle East. Ah, so this is this is 
quite a long story that I'll, I'll try to condense as, as much as possible, but I more or less grew up um, in an Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. Um, my parents, um, well, they wouldn't probably describe themselves as Zionists, so that's a, probably a conversation to, to have a different time, but they were generally pretty supportive of Israel and followed um, news in Israel pretty closely. So they would get um, newspapers that you know, were published within the community that mainly focused on Israel and Israeli politics. And in addition to everything else I was doing, I would, you know, read those papers. So from a very early age, I was probably more aware of what was going on in Israel than even my own backyard. Um, and of my mother's family, um, after the Second World War, did briefly um, live in Jerusalem. I think some of them are still there, but my ended up my mother and her parents ended up moving back. I think in the late um, or early nineteen sixties. So then, could you talk about the development of your views on sure. on Israel and and where you fall politically? Right. So this is, um, so when I was, so I'm 28 years old, um, and I probably whenever, when I came to political consciousness around this issue is probably 2006, 2007, which is, of course, the second Lebanon war. And I think my understanding of Israel or my perception of Israel has always been as a very powerful actor, which of course is not necessarily the experience of my parents' generation or their parents' generation. Um, and so I've always taken a more critical stance in the same way I would take a, a critical stance as an American about American foreign policy. I don't, I, I've never had this um, urge to be nationalistic or to be sectarian, and I've always kind of questioned um, power and, and justifications for it. So from, I probably, I would say, you know, around age 12 or 13, which I guess is when most people start to become more politically aware um, I was more or less on the left of these issues, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, and um, from then on, like when I started really writing more substantively about this issue in college and in the years after that, I, I tended to take that more both critical line, but also enough to, I, I would say, to stay within the mainstream conversation, even if I was being critical of it. Like I didn't want to, to be pushed or defined on the margins, which is sometimes a problem because that could, you know, that could lead to things like self-censorship if you aren't careful. So then with regards to uh, the incoming uh, government in Israel, uh, Netanyahu's return to power, um, how should we understand this? Because I, I mean, it seems like this is, potentially the most right-wing uh, government right. Israel has had. How, how should we look at this, especially from a perspective of a, a left or progressive sort of, of angle? Yeah, so like a week or two ago, I noticed um, um, one of the center-right journalists who covers Israel, it might have been Lahavar Kover or someone like her, um, tweeted like just, you know, how every single election or every other election, people say this is the most right-wing government Israel's ever elected. But what if it was true in every single election? And now we've actually, you know, reached the very extreme right. Um, and th that's what these election results point to. And certainly the government um, that Netanyahu is forming, I think, 
for the first time. I, in in certainly in living memory, I'm, I'm trying to recall the last time Israel had a government with exclusively right wing and religious parties. I um, probably have to go back to one of Yitzhak Shamir's governments. I think perhaps in the 80s. Um, but this is the the government that's being formed now. Um, is with you know Likud at the head of it, which has traditionally been a very hawkish um, party on the Palestinian issue, but on domestic issues was typically considered center-right or even liberal in the European context of that word. Today, I think it's a very populist far-right party, um, even if its voters may not fully get behind it, the fact that Netanyahu is, and, you know, and that's that's really, it's, it's almost a cult of personality at this point. Um, but it's the positions they're taking, especially on issues like the judiciary, where they're trying to create this override clause, um, which would essentially allow the Knesset to do whatever it wants without any judicial oversight, um, has always been a fringe position in Israel, but is now essentially the mainstream Likud position. Um, and then you have this um, really extreme right party that's the successor, I would say, of, of the Kach party from the 1990s. You have Otsma Yehudit, um, which ran together with um, the religious far right, um, headed by Betzal Smotrich, and they're ready to receive um, an expanded national security ministry, which will have control over the police, um, the border police, which operate in the West Bank um, and, and in, in East Jerusalem, as you know, and to, and to have control over essentially the entire law enforcement apparatus. Madison Israel will be controlled by the far right, which is which is quite scary. Um, what's interesting about the election result that led to this to me is that it's the votes didn't go all that differently from past years, at least in recent years. And there's been several elections in Israel in recent years. But what happened was, is that the right wing was much more strategic in how they approached um, the election than the center parties, or or if you want to call them the left wing parties, um, which split their votes in many different ways. Um, Merits fell beneath the electoral threshold. Merits is kind of the the left wing um, piece, the left wing Zionist party. You know, completely out of the Knesset, but they took down 150,000 votes with them. Um, and of course, the the parties representing Arab and Palestinian citizens of Israel split three ways, with one of the parties also falling beneath the electoral threshold. And this gave the right wing a, a significant victory. And if those splits hadn't happened, you'd probably see a more evenly divided um, parliament at this point. With regards to Netanyahu, how did he make this sort of comeback uh, politically, despite being, I guess, embroiled in you know scandal? In in many ways, the scandals have helped him consolidate his support on the Israeli right. Um, has they've always thrived on this um, notion that they're they're being victimized by an elite of of Israeli society that control the media, the the government, or the universities, um, and and that's been a long running um, trope of Netanyahu's. And of course, when these corruption scandals happened, he turned to that rhetoric that's you know in many ways worked to give him this this support on the Israeli right right what happened what he has done over the last few years is pretty astonishing you have parties that normally would have their own interests at stake like the Haredi parties of the ultra religious parties of UTJ and Shas more or less just sticking behind him regardless of whether it puts them in the opposition it put Yair Lapid someone they 
disdain. Um, they disdained his father as well um, into power, you know, where they could have, you know, if they had acted as if they acted independently and didn't just say it's Netanyahu or bust would have been able to protect their interests better. But they refused to do that because right leaning voters in Israel have become quite loyal to Netanyahu personally, not just the ideology he represents. And in that way, these scandals, these corruption scandals have helped him. So again, it comes back to that uh, issue of of Netanyahu himself almost becoming a, a cult of personality. Yeah, and, and in and the last few elections, the difference, the split between right wing and left wing has been pro Netanyahu or anti Netanyahu. Right, we haven't really had in Israel a debate about these kind of issues. I mean, with the exception of something like the judiciary, which is so in you know so tied up with what Netanyahu is about at this point, you don't have um, the Israeli Palestinian conflict hasn't really figured in any of the last couple of elections. There's basically this consensus on the center left that we're not going to do anything about this because right now we need to unite um, to stop Netanyahu. And that was the modus operandi of the government um, that lasted from June 21 until a year later. Do you see any parallels between, uh, you know, uh, Netanyahu and Israel and this sort of cult of personality around him um, and this sort of, you know, just politics becoming pro-Netanyahu or anti-Netanyahu. Do you see that as similar to anything in the US? I mean, I'm thinking of Trump a little bit here because of his cult of personality. Yeah. And, and and what's what's interesting is, is that you in, in Israel, you also have this kind of impotent right wing opposition to Netanyahu that people like Gidon Saar, who was a very loyal um, Likud member for many years, left the party um, and ran on his own, um, got a few seats and ended up joining the Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid government. Um, Benny Begin, who is the son of Menachem Begin, also left Likud. So you, you also have like this you know, rough equivalent of a never BB movement on the right in Israel that has, you know, joined with the center left parties to try to to try to thwart him. It did successfully do that for about a year and a half. Uh, but in in I would say the difference, the, the core difference, of course, between the US and Israel is our electoral systems. Um, we have very much a binary one where you're either supporting the Democrat or the Republican. And in that case, you know, even if you have a conservative or a far right figure who doesn't like Donald Trump, um, really dislikes him, will still might support him if the choice is between Trump or Hillary Clinton or Trump and Joe Biden or whatnot. In Israel, there are more. If you're a conservative voter who really hates Netanyahu, you could vote for a right wing party, you know, like Naftali Bennett's um, party in 2021 or Gidon Saar and Benny Gantz. Um, in the most recent election, you could register, you know, your values, your right wing values without supporting Netanyahu. And I think that's a lot tougher when you're dealing with an either or binary choice the way you have in the United States. I also wanted to ask, you mentioned the um, Otsma Yehudit party uh, led by, I believe, um, Itamar Ben-Giver. Um, it, now, for people that, that are confused by this, I, I know it's called a Kahanist party, um, but it, it's... I guess the the predecessor party, the Kak party, is um, it, it was outlawed in Israel. So how did that come into being? If that was the case, 
So the formal party of Mayor Kahana, so I think probably, I, I don't know how familiar your listeners are with, with Mayor Kahana, but he was this American um, born rabbi and, and, and rabble rouser who founded the Jewish Defense League in the United States, which was kind of this um, far right group among, you know, working or lower middle class Jews in the 1960s post-war generation who kind of came into conflict with a lot of different communities um, in Brooklyn, basically. And um, it was it was more or less a gang. I, I don't know how else to describe it. And he ended up moving to Israel, I would say, in the 1970s. Um, and his brand of politics in Israel at first didn't really work. And I don't think he ever had much support. He was elected to the Knesset in 1984 with around 20,000 votes, and his party only got one seat, which was himself. And his main issue was anti-Arab racism. He wanted to deport Arabs. He didn't think they should be they should live in the Jewish state at all. And there was this um, consensus, really, um, between you know, at the time Israel did have a right-wing prime minister Yitzhak Shabir, but he would often lead walkouts of the Knesset when Mayor Kahana got up to speak because Mayor Kahana was just so obviously extreme that you know even the extreme right couldn't didn't care for him because he the, the issues that he focused on at the time were were not things that were on people's radar this was before the first intifada and even right wing israelis at the time didn't view palestinians as a major threat um but he did um and that was that was his issue and he was outlawed i like to say 1988 which was probably around the very beginning of the first um, intifada um, he was outlawed by. I, I, it wasn't. I don't think Kach was directly outlawed. What happened was the Knesset passed what is an equivalent of a constitutional amendment called a basic law, saying you know if there's a, a party that's openly racist, um, it can't compete in the election. And I think Kach was then outlawed based on that, and it was passed based to, to target Kach. Um, and it was it was outlawed. But what happened was is the people who made it up were still there. So the few followers that Kahana had, the really hardcore ones, people like Baruch Marzel, um, a very young Itamar Ben Gvir at the time, still stuck around and were active politically and just switched to other parties or just didn't operate under the Kach banner. So in Israel, you you know, to, to create a political party is not a very um it's not a very significant step. There, you know, usually 10 to 12 parties represented in the Knesset. And if one party gets banned, you kind of just create another one or go to another organization. Um, but what happened, of course, in the 1990s, you had the Oslo process, which, you know, in some ways marginalized the far right. Um, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin certainly didn't do the Kahana movement any favors, and, and neither did um, the Cave of the Patriarchs massacre, which was which was done by Baruch Goldstein, who was a follower of Kahana. But um, what makes Ben Gvir, I think, in some ways a much greater threat than Kahana ever was, and this is an argument that Shal Magid made in his recent biography of Kahana, is that he- I've, I've had understood- Shal on the show before. Oh, that's great. So he wrote a great book on, on Mayor Kahana that came out last year. And I think one of the points he made was that the one of the reasons Kahana failed to attract any support in Israel is because he kind of brought the issues of Brooklyn of the 1960s to the Middle East, which people didn't care for and didn't identify with, whereas kind of the indigenous Kahanists, the people who grew up there and, and kind of know how to appeal to to 
you know, the right wing populist base have been able to take what would work with the Kahanist program, get rid of the weird religious eschatologies that, you know, turned people off and just really focus on the things that get people going. And I think Ben Veer did that. Um, he took advantage of a lot of issues that I think aren't necessarily illegitimate. I think, you know, you have issues in mixed cities. People um, don't feel very safe. But of course, these answers, this racism, this kind of um, uh, sectarianism is not the answer to it. But I think he identified issues that really connected with certain voters um, in ways that Kahana was completely incapable of. So in, in if people might recall in May of 2021, there was the series of riots um, in cities in Israel that have both significant Jewish and Palestinian um, populations, places like Lod, Jaffa, Acre. Um, and there were a variety of reasons why these riots took place. There was, of course, the war in Gaza was a precipitating factor, but there's just been a very long legacy of, of socioeconomic inequality. Um, and this is not just me as kind of a liberal left person saying this. The Israeli state comptroller issued a report over the summer, you know, pretty much confirming that this was a, a major cause of these disturbances. Um, what Ben Gvir has basically done was take that experience and to say that this happened because we're losing control of our state. This is supposed to be the Jewish state, and we aren't policing these cities. We aren't showing his campaign slogan was um was we should be the landlords, um Balhabait, right? So it, it's this 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 sense of ownership that he's that he's trying to instill in these voters rather you know to address what are genuine issues of insecurity uh, but but I think Enkana never really tried to do that he was a hardcore ideologue who was really stuck in his own system of worldviews that no one that very few people cared about or even understood and Ben Gvir is a much more a much savvier politician it, it sounds like Kahana was um, maybe sort of stuck in that, that the, the sort of U.S. world, um, where in a lot of ways, I would say he was very much rejected uh, by the American Jewish community. Then he goes to right. Israel, but he also has trouble there because what he cared about doesn't necessarily translate to Israel. But you're saying- with right. Uh, yeah, okay, that's, that's correct. Yeah. And and towards the end of his life, I mean, this is in the Shalmagid book, Kahana starts becoming very- coming skeptical of Zionism, but from the far right, where he kind of like just wants to, he, he becomes more apocalyptic in this way. Like he started writing these, these religious works that I, I can never quite wrap my head around. Um, but he became a very um, fringe figure before he was assassinated. Um, and he was assassinated in the United States, not in Israel. Um, but he wasn't, um, after he got banned from the Knesset, I don't think, he didn't figure as a major figure in Israel after that. And even when he was in the Knesset, he was this kind of person that you ostracized or ignored. Um, they Certainly right-wing politicians weren't afraid to lose votes to him the way Netanyahu or others might be afraid of their far-right challengers today. Whereas Ben Gieber maybe can, um, he can appeal to the, the concerns that Israelis have. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't think I don't think everyone who voted for Ben Gvir is is a racist or or a far right uh, ideologue. I, I I mean, I don't think everyone who voted. I I, I mean, you one could say I, I don't think that's that's probably not the case. I don't think you would have um, a, a genuine Kahanist party would win that many votes. Uh, but what he did was, as I mentioned, kind of take that worldview. Um, and of course, he's been significantly sanitized over the last year or two. He, I think, at some point there was one study. Study that said he appeared more frequently on Israeli television than most other politicians. Um, and he he over over the last couple of years, he's been normalized. And I think the issues that he latched onto are real. And that's the reason why his party did so well, especially if you look at the actual results in those cities, in those areas that were affected by the street violence of May 2021, who deep outperformed on the Jewish side and on the on Palestinian voters supported Balad, which is, I'm certainly not equating these two parties, but it is, you know, the more protest or nationalist political party in it, um, on, in the Palestinian Arab sector in Israel. Um, so these issues are, are very real. And unfortunately, um, he was able to take advantage of that. I'm curious too because I, I've heard that um, you know figures like Smotrich uh, could be concerning for reasons just beyond what people talk about when it comes to, to Palestinians. Um, I guess what I'm referring to is does the far right in Israel uh, pose a threat to like LGBTQ uh, communities? The short answer is yes. Um, so there, there is the Batsal Smatrich who is who is who ran with Ben Gvir. Um, he's kind of the more um, uh, probably the more traditional religious Zionist uh, point of view, but further to the right of it, hard, more hardline and nationalist, kind of sometimes called Haraldi, which is ultra orthodox but very nationalist, which is usually two things that didn't go together on that, but in more recent years have kind of appealed to a more younger group of religious Jews. Um, and he's, you know, I think a few years ago, he called himself a proud homophobe. Um, but in, in the last couple of years, I would say Smutrich himself has probably wisely um, not hit on this issue as much as in the past. But you do have one person um, who, for whatever reason, Netanyahu has brought into his coalition, even though he doesn't need him numerically, um, a figure named Avi Maoz, who also ran with Ben Gvir and Smutrich, um, who's only issue, as far as I can tell, is being homophobic and um, and brought him in and is now, if this coalition agreement happens, will be in charge of external programs at the Ministry of Education, which means that he would be in charge of more or less the list of 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 organizations and programs that are eligible to you know be used in, in Ministry of Education schools. So it means he could you know go after all of these NGOs and organizations that would bring in these kind of LGBTQ education seminars and, and things like that. Um, Netanyahu claims, and I and I think he's probably sincere that he'll you know not he'll work to make sure that these parties don't get what they want on LGBTQ issues. That the status quo will stay the same, but I don't think he can guarantee that. Um, the, you know, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot that happens on the street um, that these, you know, the parties that he's bringing into government now are not, um, are not, you know, just political parties. They they have actors um, in the street, especially someone like Ben Gvir. And um, 
and with you know with something as volatile as the Jerusalem gay pride parade which is always um, an issue every year I don't know how Netanyahu necessarily responds to certain provocations that are created outside of the direct parliamentary context. I don't think there's going to be anti-gay laws that get passed. I think that there, you know he's he's intelligent enough to know that would be reckless and to try to stop those. But um, and it doesn't look like there will be just in the coalition agreement that's that's being formed. But I think there is a lot um, to worry about both what can be done unilaterally in ministries like what putting Abimelech in charge of external programs at the Ministry of Education and what happens on the street level with supporters of these parties now feeling more empowered to act. So I mean, I feel like this question may come off as redundant, but what does this mean for Palestinians, um, especially in light of, you know, I've read about the Jerusalem Day marches can get very intense sometimes. Um, you know, what what does this new incoming government mean for Palestinians? So there's been several arguments. Um, so I, I, there are many, there are some Palestinians who said there's no difference who's in charge of the Israeli government, that this is, you know, a, a Zionist state. Um, they occupy the Palestinian territories. Palestinians are it, um, citizens are treated as second class citizens and under occupation. It's a system of apartheid in total. So it doesn't, you know, this is just who's who's in charge of this system doesn't really matter. Um, I don't think I, I disagree with that completely um i i who is the people being um elevated by netanyahu right now are those who have long had designs on these ministries are have long-term plans of making things much much worse um for palestinians both citizens of israel and those living in the occupied territories um uh, the issue that you mentioned before is is something that in the past, for instance, Ben Gvir, um, who, who would attend, um, try to attend some of these Jerusalem flag marches, would be stopped by the government. They wouldn't let him do that because they understand that he is a figure who incite, potentially incites violence. Of course, now he's going to be the minister in charge of the police. I, I don't think that I, I think that's a major difference. Um, and compared to the last government, where you know it was it was not a good situation for Palestinians. Um, they were the occupation was still happening. Even in Israel, there was still intent, even with an Arab party in government, there was still, you know, intense discrimination. Uh, the the funeral of Shireen Abu Akhla that was kind of attacked by by police and border police was, you know, a Labour Party minister was in charge of, of the police at the time. So it's not, I, I wouldn't, I'm not singing the praises of previous governments, but I, I I do fear that things are going to get much worse with uh, with with figures who've long had these designs and dreams of, of what they've wanted to do um, to, to quote unquote show who's boss. And it's it's something I'm I'm very much afraid of. And if you look, um, it, it, I, I you know in if I was at a conference yesterday and someone mentioned um how twenty years ago um during October two thousand, which is a seminal event in the his, in Palestinian history because it's when um there were protests um, around the time of the Second Intifada and the Israeli police responded very harshly, killing many protesters. In twenty twenty one, you. The police did put down these riots, but I don't think that many people were killed. There was a difference between these two. And I think that what I'm afraid of is we might go in the back into the other direction where you have people at the top encouraging violence, encouraging the, the harshest 
kinds of responses um, to Palestinian uprisings. And I, um, I do fear things will get worse. So one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on the show was uh, a few weeks ago, you wrote an opinion piece um, for, I believe it was for Heretz entitled, yeah. uh, Can We Really Use the Term Jewish Supremacy About Israel? And I wanted to ask you about this specific subject because, I mean, I've seen over the years you know, horrible white nationalist anti-Semite types like David Duke throw around these terms like Jewish supremacy. I've also had Israeli journalists and friends of mine say, and they're on the left, of course, say, well, this is different. Like this, people like Ben Giebert, from their perspective, really do represent a supremacist ideology. So how should we talk about this term Jewish supremacy as it's being used today? Well, I don't have an easy answer, and that was the point of writing that article. Um, so this, as you said, was the, the term Jewish supremacy both, I think, refers to a, a real ideology um, in Israel, which is a majority Jewish state, um, which is an anomaly, of course, in, in recent history. Um, and then there's this other term that's that's used, mainly um, David Duke wrote a book with that title, um, is to assert this kind of global Jewish conspiracy, you know, that that Jews control the world finance or the media or, or, or represent this kind of transnational elite. Um, and that's a very different um, use of the term Jewish supremacy. What I've unfortunately seen is people on the right try to locate these, as you said, even Israeli activists who use this term, and it is a jarring term, to try to bring attention to these new racist political parties in Israel, people like Ben Gvir, or even just a long-running status quo in which millions of Palestinians are disenfranchised and have no hope for their future, and and where the term may very well apply um, in, a, in a political sense and say, no, what you're referring to is a white nationalist conspiracy theory. Um, And that the reason I wrote this article is because I do think that it's it's I I personally don't use the term Jewish supremacy because of its links um, to that. And I because I I wouldn't want someone who was reading my article to, to Google that and then go down that rabbit hole. But of course, that's a personal choice. And I wouldn't want to suggest that this is something that everyone must follow or else they're implicated in, in disseminating white supremacy, which I don't think is the case. Um, But I've unfortunately seen in recent months and weeks, um, particularly um, in Jewish studies um, in academia, which has come under, certain scholars have come under attack because they signed a letter um, in 2021 that made reference to Jewish supremacy when condemning this sort of um, political activity by the far right. And their critics have latched on to that phrase to say that, you know, now they're adjacent to neo-Nazis, which is preposterous. Uh, and, and so I thought it would be good. And I think it was worthwhile to try to directly address the issue because I don't think it has been directly addressed. You just have people who use the term and then people who attack you for using the term. Um, and I try to more or less take the bird's eye view of it. So one thing I was interested in discussing with you is where are there points that you think that the Israeli left or liberal Israelis, where have they gone wrong um, maybe in in recent years? Um, And and I ask this question because I know uh, you're pretty critical, I think, of um, Gideon Levy, uh, another journalist at Haritz. Um, And I've I've met Gideon and, you know, I'm fond of him in some ways. 
I think he's an interesting person, but you're critical of him and some other people, I, I would say, on the Israeli left in some ways. So what would your criticisms of the left be in Israel? So my my the, that would be distinct from my criticism of Levy, who I think in in you know in some ways he's a very uh, brave journalist. I think the stuff that he writes in, from the West Bank, he has a weekly column in Haaretz that he does with a, a photographer named um, Alex Levac. Um, and that I think is is phenomenal journalism. The problem I have I is is with his commentary, which I think sometimes takes on a more a tinge of trolling, really, and not being very substantive. And and he's been, I, I don't know if you saw that he had met actually with Netanyahu and and both Netanyahu's um at, at the home of of Benny Ziffer, who was kind of a the one one of the right wingers at Haaretz. And, and there's like this picture of him smiling with with Netanyahu. And I, I think that he's not um I, I, I just don't think he wants to be taken seriously anymore. And he wants to just be this kind of irritant on the side of the Israeli left, which I don't find to be very um to be very useful. Um, but I, I don't think that detracts from the the worthiness of, of his journalistic writing. Um but in I think, general I, I was gonna say real quick, I, I think yeah. one of the things that comes up with uh Gideon a lot is that, you know, it, it's always this is the worst it's gonna get. And finally outside pressure will put an end to uh, yeah, that's problems. another thing I'm pretty critical of him about, which is I I I don't think the fact that there's a far right government is good news for for anyone except for the far right. I don't I I I'm very skeptical of the idea that the United States is going to put any pressure on Israel. Certainly, something like the someone like Joe Biden is is not going to do that. I think and Netanyahu has this talent of walking up to a line and not crossing it, um, which he did pretty well under the Obama administration. And I. Think think that you know i i don't foresee anything like that happening and i and i don't even know how honestly levy makes that argument today um anymore but it's it's preposterous in my view um but on the broader level of the israeli left i think the the problem they made was 20 years ago when the labor party was in government um it's a little more than 20 years ago now but um after the failure of the Camp David talks in 2000, Ehud Barak made a famous um, statement saying he had no partner for peace. And at that point, for the left to surrender the position of the two-state solution or to say that this was no longer possible uh, was a huge, huge error, and it never recovered from that. Some Israelis would say, of course, that they were just acknowledging reality, and you know there there was no there was no other way to it. I think we know better now, given hindsight, but just. I think at some point the center left gave up trying to create an alternative to the right's narrative. Um, and in the end, they ended up lining up behind Ariel Sharod's um, unilateral plans in the mid 2000s, withdrawing from Gaza. Um, had he been in power for longer, I'm sure there would have been a strategic withdrawal somewhere in the West Bank, but it would have left Israel in control of large chunks of territory uh, that would have been unrecognized internationally as Israel. But there was, I, I think, the the ideal of with of you know a two state solution based on the pre sixty seven lines has not been a serious center left position in Israel in in close to twenty years. Um, maybe there was this brief moment in two thousand seven or two thousand eight when it looked like Tzipi Livni might represent that position um, for the Israeli center or the Israeli center left, but it didn't come of anything. Um, 
but to give up um and to really accept this right-wing narrative of 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 you know that you're going to live by the sword forever was devastating and you know even if the left would have lost anyway over the last 20 years which is which is possible i i think that that really sealed their fate in retrospect i also wanted to ask you i, I don't know if you're familiar with um uh, he's he i think he's a, a history professor actually at the hebrew university of jerusalem um Yuval Noah harari uh, who's known for his book Sapiens, Sapiens and um, yeah. Homo Deus. He came out recently and, and said that he, and he's not endorsing this, but he's saying that he doesn't see uh, the two-state solution as being something that Israel is, is going to support, that Israel rallies have abandoned that. And he is sort of uh, is arguing now that we're seeing the adoption of a sort of multi-tiered state with Israeli Jews at the top of the hierarchy and you know, different hierarchies below that um, sort of, I guess he calls it the three classes solution is, is he on point there? Or do you think there's criticisms to be made of that? I, I, I've seen criticisms from the left that he hasn't, that he's been trying, that he's avoiding using the term apartheid by saying there's a three class. So I, I, but I think that the analysis is largely correct. Um, you, if you took a poll of Israelis, I think you might still find a plurality in theory supporting a two state solution. Um, the current prime minister for at least a couple more days, Yair Lapid, um, is on record supporting a two state solution, but it always comes with the caveat of we can't do this right now. Um, you know, there's there's no either there's no partner or it's just not possible. Um, and I think this this the status quo, which Israelis are becoming increasingly more comfortable with, does resemble the reality that Yuval Noah Harari and others have 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 pointed to, which is this 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 permanent inequality um, between Israelis and Palestinians, even including Arab citizens of Israel. But of course, they have citizenship and, and can vote and Palestinians living in the West Bank and, and Gaza cannot. But the status quo right now, I think, is the the one position in Israel that probably has majority support, where there's this idea that you can continue doing what you're doing without any consequences, um, which which in the past has proven quite destructive when you have events like the first or, or second intifada are, are sometimes really, unfortunately, only things that really wake up society to that this is, you know, there are these terrible injustices happening that we that we're responsible for and we have to address in some way. But um, right now, um, the, the West Bank seems to at least most Israelis far enough away from them, even if they live in settlements, they're they're still, you know, they're partitioned away from Palestinian towns and cities. They don't they don't have to confront uh, this issue head on the way they used to. And that's ironically partly a result of the Oslo Accords. Could you delve into that a bit more? How, how is it a result of the Oslo Accords? In case I have listeners that oh, of course. Um, um so the Oslo Accords created um the Palestinian Authority, um, which and in doing so, um, divided the West Bank into three areas. Um, area A, which is completely controlled or in theory completely controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Area B, where Israel and the Palestinian Authority jointly handle security issues and the Palestinians handle political ones. And Area C, which is where most of the Israeli settlements are um, and it's fully controlled by Israel. Prior to the first intifada, during the first 20 years of occupation um, and before the Oslo Accords, Israelis and Palestinians 
more in the West Bank were uh, were not as divided from each other, right? There weren't this. There wasn't an administrative divide between Ramallah and a settlement, right? It was all under the Israeli civil military civil administration. Following the 1990s, um, most Palestinians were put into areas A and B. Um, they now live under the Palestinian Authority, and Israelis hardly set foot in there. And of course for Palestinians to come out of those areas, they have to pass through a variety of checkpoints and other obstacles that are put in their way, either from working in Israel or, or going anywhere near the settlements. Um, so in that way, I think Israelis have been, um, they've been isolated from the, the realities of the occupation since the Oslo years, um, with certain exceptions, the Second Intifada being a particularly bloody one. But of course, what the end, the political end result of the Second Intifada was the unilateral Gaza disengagement, which pushed two million Palestinians outside of the vision of Israelis, where Gaza is now kind of all but just is not really considered um, in the way that West Bank Palestinians are, where there is still a sense on the part of Israelis that they're connected to West Bank Palestinians because of the occupation. I think Gaza has completely left the consciousness of Israelis with the exceptions of those brief periods of fighting that you have every year or two with rockets and, and airstrikes. But apart from that, I think that there's been a greater there there is an Israeli can a liberal Israeli can live comfortably um in Israel with if they you know don't look um at what's happening in the occupied territories whereas I think before the Oslo Accords it was more difficult to do that you understood that you were ruling over people who didn't have rights I guess uh one of the things I want to touch upon I, I want to shift to the the American discourse when it comes to Israel and, and Palestine but first what would it take for a change to happen um, with regards to Israel and, and what you call the, the sort of status quo right now? Um, what would it take from your perspective to see a major sort of shakeup? It's it's hard to say. I know it's hard I, I to predict that. No, I'm not trying to right, make right, it a I know, no, no, of course, of course. I, I'm, I'm... No, because the, the the answers are not always very pleasant. Um, a few years ago, a, a journalist, Nathan Thrall, wrote a book called The Only Language They Understand. Um, you know, and, and it kind of refers to both sides of this of this. I, I, I'm also wary of using the term conflict given the power disparities, but I, I don't know what will bring this issue back to, you know, I, I, right now there's no urgency on the Israeli side to solve this to solve this problem or to end the occupation or to 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 create some system where Palestinians could live in dignity and equality. Um, there's no urgency on the Israeli side. And that's where I see the main obstacle to this. And in thinking of what can possibly change that, either, you know, Palestinians put this on the agenda in some way, one, I would hope through nonviolent collective political action. But of course, that's not something I'm doing. I can't. Um, I, that's something Palestinians will have to decide for themselves. Uh, the only the other factor of it, I, we touched on this earlier when discussing Yidon Levy, is external pressure um, from either the United States or other allies of Israel or through civil society movements like BDS. Um, I, I'm just not optimistic that there's this there's enough to pressure Israel externally to act. I think that there is it's too much of a powerful state in its own right now. I think 20, 30 years ago, 
there may have been a, a point where you could conceivably pressure Israel to withdraw from the occupied territories or to be more forthcoming um, in finding a solution. Um, what, to the why conflict. is that? What's the difference between now and, and say, 20 years ago? Israel, well, two reasons. Israel has grown significantly since then. It's it's an economic powerhouse in the Middle East. Um, it has it, its G, its GDP per capita far. Um, besides for the oil, the small oil states, I think it's it's near the top of the list of the region. Um, it's a member of the OECD now, um, and in in diplomatically, Israel is much less isolated than it used to be. Um, it's you know there there was a there was a time when the Arab boycott was real, like you couldn't get Coca-Cola in Israel because of the Arab boycott. This is clearly no longer the case. Like Israel is now a, you know, a global player. It's a nuclear armed state. That's been the case since the 1960s, but it's it's no longer a country that can necessarily be pushed the way it was, say, in 1956, when it invaded the Sinai Peninsula in a conspiracy with Britain and France, and the United States kind of forced Israel out, um, you know, to, you know, threatened them at the United Nations. I, I don't see that happening anymore. Um, I, I don't think Israel is that much of a of a dependent actor the way it used to be. Also, I mean, I don't want to get sensationalistic with this, but no, is no, there a possibility ahead. going forward with Israeli politics that, or just Israeli life, or or just with Israel and Palestine in general, or, or is it possible that we're going to see more violent sort of conflagrations in the future because of this right wing government and and things that could happen? Uh, just, I mean, you have uh, with Itamar Ben Giver being the head of policing, um, you know, you could see policing look the other way on things, and then. Palestinians may react violently to that, and it just keeps escalating. Is this uh, a real concern? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and, and on all of these issues that are potentially flammable, and I'm, and I'm thinking even of, of something like the Temple Mount and Haram al-Sharif, where in the past, at least the official Israeli position was to support the status quo. Presumably, it will still be to support the status quo. Um, that's Netanyahu's position. But when you have people who, you know, who support Ben Gvir, acting on their own right on the ground how does you know if a bunch of you know far right extremist um, temple mount activists decide to hold a public prayer ceremony um outside of 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 the al-aqsa mosque you know the police are the ones who need to stop that and who's in charge of the police now is it tamar ben gvir and is he going to stop them I think that's an open question, even if the government policy is not to change the status quo on the Temple Mount. But if the status quo is clearly being eroded, that's something that Palestinians will see and will react to. And I think you have a, a great potential for violence as a result. And that's just one issue um, that I'm concerned about. There are there are several others involved in the mixed cities that we discussed earlier. That is just and and how the police will react because now the the incentives um, that they have are completely different than they were under the last government. Which what it you know, however badly it acted or imperfectly it acted in certain cases was trying to de-escalate things when they happened, and now that's not necessarily the incentive anymore, and it's it's quite frightening. Shifting over to America, uh, one thing I noticed. Um, when the elections took place in Israel recently was, uh, you know, you heard rumblings. I know Axios reported on on things like the Biden administration being concerned about figures like Ben Gieber and um, Smotrich. But do you really think, is that all talk on the U.S.'s part? 
It, it, yes. Um, so so I, I think that there are structural interests in favor of keeping the U.S.-Israel alliance going and to continue, you know, business as usual. And the fact that Netanyahu is in charge of this government, I think, probably makes that more likely. He knows who not to send to the United States, right? Ben Gvir is not going to be, you know, traveling with him when he meets with Joe Biden or when he speaks in front of Congress or goes to meet members of the American Jewish community. He is savvy enough to know not to do that. Um, so he, this is a conversation between Israel and people in the United States who want the U.S.-Israel relationship to continue and, and have every incentive to look the other way. And Netanyahu will do his best to make that job as feasible as possible for them. Um, I, you know, there's always a possibility that some event happens and uh, Ben Gvir is implicated in it in some ways as being, you know, this minister um, that the U.S. is forced to react to. Um, the U.S. response to the killing of Shireen Abu Akhla was was pretty, you know, bad in my estimation. But in, in some ways, the United States did react to it, took it serious, somewhat seriously. Um, said it was, you know, an unjustified killing and all of that. Um, so you you could imagine a situation where the U.S. is forced to react to an event, but I don't think the Biden administration is looking to preemptively do anything about this government. And the only murmuring that I heard was that they wanted to encourage the centrist parties in Israel, like Lapid or, or Benny Gantz, to try to, to, to join Netanyahu to prevent this far-right government from being formed. But I think that came from a poor understanding of Israeli politics on, on the part of, of administration officials, if that indeed was the case. What, what are the sort of structural incentives at work for keeping the, the U.S.-Israel relationship as it currently is? Is it, I mean, because I've heard some people say, well, you know, with with things like uh, the the JCPOA falling apart, I, I, Iran is now sort of uh, firmly in this sort of China Russia camp, and also you you know Saudi Arabia and, and these Gulf states are seen as uh, increasingly maybe unreliable. Um, is that a reason for maybe why we're continuing the relationship as it is, or are there other reasons? Right. So I, 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 what you said is pretty much right. I think that for a very long time, at least since. Um, since the 1970s, Israel has been the main partner of the United States and the Middle East. Um, you have other relationships. You know, we have one with Turkey, which is a NATO member, and the Arab states, of course. But I think the one, um, the, the relationship with Israel has endured very strongly because it also has a strong domestic constituency for its support. Um, either you know, American Jewish organizations, but also you know, Christian groups, evangelical groups that are very pro-Israel. These things align with strategic interests that the United States has in the region. Of course, there are disagreements between the U.S. and Israel, such as the the JCPOA under the Obama administration, and um, and if. Biden, though it seems increasingly unlikely now, given the domestic situation in Iran, were to try to revive that in, in the coming year or two, would face opposition from Netanyahu. But the underlying U.S.-Israel relationship, military to military, intelligence service to intelligence service that has developed over the last 50 years or so isn't, isn't going to go anywhere. And I don't think Biden, if, if, if there were to be a U.S. administration that tried to 
arrest this flow of the far to the far right in Israel. It's not going to be this administration. Um, it's Joe Biden has been um, been a creature of establishment foreign policy in Washington since since the Nixon administration, since he was elected to the Senate um, at the age of twenty nine, and and you don't change when you're pro, when you're pushing eighty. Um, and I I don't think it's going to I I don't think it's this administration that will do anything about it in the future. I could you could see something, but what's what's happened, of course, is that the Republican Party has moved in a much further direction in being pro Israel and and being supportive. Of, of these, even the Israeli far right. I, I was going to say uh, one of the things I've noticed is um, it seems like APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, is firmly almost like it's it's a partisan sort of organization now. It seems to be very much on the side of Republicans. They'll support, speaking. right? They'll support. They'll still support Democrats who toe the line, right? But increasingly, the people they oppose are all Democrats now. Whereas in the past, you would still have these kind of Bush senior Republicans who were a little bit skeptical of the U.S.-Israel relationship, like James Baker, or I think Charles Percy is another famous case of the 1980s, who APAC would be able to rally against. So they would. They they are supporting still Democrats, like Richie Torres, for example. Examples a favorite of APAX um, and Chuck Schumer, of course. Um, so they they do have Democrats they support, but increasingly the only people they're opposing are Democrats. So in regards to the American discourse about um, Israel and Palestine, I, I think sometimes people have this idea that you know there, there's just like two camps. I think there's people that think there's Zionists and there's anti-Zionists, and I don't. I think that's very oversimplified. I think there's uh, groups like APAC out there um, that I, I would say are very, you know, much on the sort of Netanyahu like could side. Um, and I think there's also groups like J Street, which are still pro-Israel, but definitely not on the like could side of things. And I think, right. uh, you know, much more moderate and much more liberal. And I, I do think there are, you know, um, Jewish people uh, who are very, you know, much on the, the anti-Zionist side of things, maybe in a smaller minority, but it seems like we often forget that there's uh, there's not like one set opinion on Israel uh, just amongst the American Jewish community. Right, right. Um, and, and there, of course, are, are multiple. Historically, Zionism has not been a monolithic worldview. You've had, you know, different currents um, within Zionism. And of course, anti-Zionism is also this umbrella term that kind of brings together a lot of disparate worldviews and ideologies. There are multiple strands of Zionism that we see in, in the United States, certainly, um, with regard to pro-Israel organizations like you have APAC that's more of the hawkish um, establishment center, right? And you have J Street, which was really born in response to that, to try to create this, this liberal um, pro-Israel constituency that supported a two-state solution. Um, I, I think what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, people who are more on the Palestinian solidarity end of things um, want to define Zionism primarily and how it's manifested politically um, in the state of Israel, which I, I don't think is an unfair argument. I think there's there's a lot to that, that, you know, you want to 
take a look at Zionism, as Edward Said said, from the standpoint of its victims, which is something completely different than the way I, as, as an American Jew, might engage with Zionism. Uh, but you're right, I think, in, in that this shouldn't be the main divide uh, on this issue. I think that we need to create, or at least us on the, on the liberal left or the progressive left, need to create um, diverse coalitions that are willing to support equality and, and freedom for Palestinians. And I don't think that evenly divides between Zionists and anti-Zionists. Um, but in the American discourse um, in recent years, and, and that, that I've noticed, the term is mainly now used this almost disciplinary context to try to keep um, American Jews in line with a certain um, with a certain viewpoint. Um, but what's interesting to me is that um, even when I was, you know, more openly calling myself a progressive or liberal Zionist, which I, I, you know, my views are generally been the same, but it's, it was, it, you were never quite believed, right? So it was never, you know, you could call yourself that and J Street calls itself Zionist, but the right wing doesn't care about that, right? They'll still call you anti-Zionist or anti-Semitic or self-hating. It's, it's, it's almost, you know, I, I would tell people if it's something you feel very strongly about, you have a very strong connection to the Jewish state, go ahead and, and call yourself a Zionist, but don't think that it's going to protect you um, if you support Palestinian rights or freedom for Palestinians, because it's not. Yeah, I was going to say briefly in that regard, I was just reading, I forget which right-wing publication it was. I don't I don't think it was a, uh, I think it was a publication called like American Free Beacon, but it, it was fascinating to me because they were talking about Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State going to J Street, and the headline was, Anthony Blinken goes to anti-Israel organization. Right, I'm thinking to myself, right. oh my, how, how J, J Street does not seem anti-Israel to me. No, no, and 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 they and they would probably call them anti-Zionist as well. So it's just this. It's it's. I I wish these terms weren't as important as some people treat them as, but they are. They are a part of the the lexicon of this conflict, given its given its history. And um, I, you know, a few a few weeks ago, I was. Um, at a at a speak, it was a, it was an event by the the professor and author Rashid Khalidi, and he was asked about um, someone in the audience asked him about this thing that was happening at UC Berkeley, where a couple of law student associations decided not to have any more speaker or to to say like if you know if someone's a Zionist they can't speak in front of this group or whatnot, and um, from a from a very uh, pro Palestinian perspective, he responded that he just didn't understand the point of these things that you need to. You know, as an activist, as someone looking to advance a certain cause, you should be finding people who are on the margins of these movements, who are skeptical and are starting to question certain things and bring them over to your side. And I think one example he brought up was Peter Beinart, who, you know, still is um, a, a Zionist or a cultural Zionist. Like if this is this is the kind of person you need to try to win over and to create these kind of very rigid binaries is never helpful in that regard. I was going to ask, um, how, how are we to interpret, for people that don't know, maybe you could just explain um, Peter Beinert's sort of view on things and, and what we mean by cultural Zionism. Sure. Um, so P Peter Beinart, just for, for context, was is this American Jewish figure, um, used to be the editor of the New Republic, which was a, a, a very pro-Israel liberal magazine, but in 2009 started to become more openly um, critical of the occupation. And for 
from 2009 to 2020, he was the main, I would say, in the American Jewish community, the main spokesperson for the two-state solution. Um, he wrote a book called The Crisis of Zionism that that made this argument, and he wrote a series of articles in the New York Times and the New York Review of Books. Um, and of course, he was viciously attacked by, by the right wing in the community as an anti-Zionist, but was still treated, I think, as a progressive or liberal Zionist figure. Um, fast forward to 2020, he becomes more involved in Jewish Currents, which is a, a magazine that was relaunched um, about a year or two before that, and is uh, at this point, I would say, is a non, uh, an openly non-Zionist or anti-Zionist magazine, but is really represents the, the left left in the Jewish community. And he wrote an article saying he no longer believes um, in a Jewish state or a sovereign Jewish state. But in that article itself, which is quite long, he does still identify as a cultural Zionist, which means he still wants to, you know, once he's still involved with Israel, still wants there to be a Jewish, um, still still wants Israel to play a role in the Jewish world in a, in, in a sense, but doesn't believe in the political system that Zionism has created. So he hearkens back to figures like Martin Buber and Gershom Shalom um, in the 1940s, who were a very, very small minority of, of Zionists who supported a binational state. Um, in Israel, Palestine, what you know, it's a complicated picture because at the time Palestinians did not support a binational state either. So you had really these group of thirty or forty intellectuals who called themselves cultural Zionists, and they were very outspoken and kind of marginalized. Except, you know, they they were the only place they really had any power was was in the Hebrew University cafeteria. Like they were just these group of cultural Zionists, and that's what he's hearkening back to. Um, what's very interesting, though, is that scholars of Jewish studies and Israel studies have really gone back to the, the really early years of Zionism and, and writings about it. And we tend to read history backwards from 1948 and thinking that the state or the nation state was always the goal of Zionism. And that's not true. Um, you know, Someone like Theodore Herzl, when he was writing, didn't include a plan to overthrow the Ottoman Empire, right? He didn't think that there was going to be a sovereign Jewish state in Palestine. Altenoyland imagines, you know, a Jewish community living in Palestine under, you know, the sovereignty of the Ottoman Empire. So if you were to you know, in, in some ways, creatively look back um, or just look back um, at early Zionist writings, you could create this pedigree or justification um, for a binational Zionism or a non-sovereign Zionism. But of course, today, the hegemonic view among Zionists and, and among Jewish Israelis and among pro-Israel Jews in the United States is that Zionism is equivalent to national sovereignty and anything that deviates from that is anti-Zionist. And that's really where people Peter Beinart has, has fallen in their view to that, but he still insists that he is. Um, and historically, I think he has a strong case for saying he's a Zionist. Yeah, it, my understanding has been when I've talked to people who describe as cultural Zionists that they believe that you know that they they have a strong connection to the land uh, to to Israel, but uh, that you know that it doesn't have to be uh, the same as the sort of Zionist political project we see today. Um, a yeah. lot of people I know who say they're cultural Zionists, I, and maybe I'm misinterpreting them, but it seems like they believe in the sort of one state idea. 
Right. And there are also a variety of one state ideas. Right. So and one thing that I think Ian Lustig has been right to point out is that we currently live in a one state reality. Right. There is one state control between the between the Mediterranean River and the, and the, the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Right. There is there's only one sovereign national state between them. There, the status quo is one state. Um, and so we're talking about alternatives to that. And one of them is the two state solution. And there are other forms of the one state solution that are frankly more politically acceptable or, or acceptable to any one of decent liberal values, right? Right now, the status quo is a version of one state. And I think that's not talked about nearly enough um, by critics of the occupation even. There were just two more questions I had. Uh, the first is, you know, in talking about um, trying to work towards uh, Palestinians having, you know, um, freedom and, and treat it with human dignity and equality. Uh, you know, one thing that I've wondered about, so th there are Palestinians that are just vehemently anti-Zionist. Is there any common ground that can exist between someone who would describe more as a progressive uh, Zionist and someone who uh, maybe just, uh, you know, views the, the Zionist program as entirely um, something that they're opposed to? <laughs> I think there can be if there's if there's a common view that the other side isn't going to leave, right? I think, and I I think at this point there's no reason to believe that anymore after multiple generations of you know of, of Jews have lived in Israel, right? Um, since since um, the dawn of the Zionist movement and even before that, you know these these are people who identify as as Israeli citizens. And I think most Palestinians at this point realize that even if when people call themselves an anti-Zionist. I don't, you know, immediately think that they're trying to reverse, you know, the last hundred years of history, literally, like as, you know, we're going to take back all of this land and any, you know, Jews who arrived after 1917 have to leave. I don't think that's a, a common view anymore. And I, 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 but when people call themselves anti-Zionist, right, or, or organize around that, they do feed this perception on the Israeli side or on the pro-Israel side that this is that this is something that they support. Um, so, in in short, yes, I think there are there are there are areas where I think there should be common struggle between progressive or left-wing Zionists and anti-Zionists. I have long. Um, urged people on the Israeli left, especially in Meretz, to be more open to working with the joint list, which used to, which was the the party that represents um, Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel. It's one of the parties, and they are a non-Zionist or anti-Zionist group of people, but they still, you know, by running for office in Israel, still acknowledge the state's right to, you know, I I don't even like using this language because it's so manipulative, but the right to exist. Um, so I I think there's if we if we turn the focus away from the abstract political issues of you know whether Israel should be what kind of state should Israel be and, and focus on issues of democracy and freedom and and dignity I think there is a lot of of common ground between progressive Zionists who are you know increasingly a minority in Israel but I still think it's important to have a part of the dominant population you know turning against a current oppressive system I don't think you can have it you know I, I it's not like you had in South Africa, where there's an 80 to 20, 90 to 10 population difference. There is, you know, Israelis live there. They are attached to their country. They're not going anywhere. And I think once there's an acknowledgement that both peoples are there to stay, I would hope that these 
these ideas, these concepts are not going to prevent coalitions in support of, of democracy and, and freedom and dignity from being formed. But unfortunately, as, as we know, they have. Yeah. So it, it sounds like um, in some ways you're saying maybe um, both sides of this need to listen to each other a little bit more. Because um, I know, you know, it, it becomes a difficult question if you are um, a progressive Zionist and someone is, you know, a, a Palestinian who who is non-Zionist or anti-Zionist. I, I assume that that can that could be a friction point in some ways, but I think you're right. You know, we should at least be willing to dialogue with each other. And I think that's probably one of the most important things we need right and, now. And I think you, and I think you see that like, for, like with the way J street operates, like their conferences include many Palestinian non-Zionists and anti-Zionists. And they're often attacked for that reason by the right that they're, you know, communicating with these people. And, and that's a reason why I'm frequently attacked or when I was a little bit more, you know, public on social media for just not, you know, falling on, you know, our side of the sectarian line. And that's that's always going to be a problem for people. But I think if we, again, refocus ourselves and to understand that the status quo is unjust, um, that there's extreme forms of, of inequality and oppression that are being meted out on Palestinians, and we need to solve this issue regardless of whether one historically identifies as a Zionist or an anti-Zionist, I think you know we need to really focus on that, to focus on the contemporary problems that are being faced by these people in the region. Just so people know, uh, since there'll be, most people will hear the audio version of this first. Um, yeah. You sort of said our side with the quotation marks. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I, I it, it's, it's something that frustrates me greatly. I, I don't think that, you know, just because I, I am Jewish, I need to instinctively support Israel or that I need to, you know, instinctively sympathize with Israel. Like I, I there, There's something, not to interrupt you, but there's something like, to me, very anti-Semitic about the idea that you have to instinctively support Israel, like as if Jews are like a monolith. No, and it's not directly stated, right? So you'll have people say, you know, when they when they call you a self-hating Jew is to try to imply that you're kind of traitorous and that you don't really feel a part of your community because you're not supporting, you know, your what which should be considered your side. And I'm I'm not on a like I, I don't think in those terms, or at least I, I try not to think in those terms and to try to to try to think about the actual issues that are that are at play and what's and, and, and to solve injustices and to Correct injustice is not to. I don't. I don't consider myself a combatant in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where I think people who are, you know, more on the right in the Jewish community want to encourage um, students, you know, for instance, on campus to try to identify with a side like you're on this side, and you know, the pro-Palestinian students, they're your enemy, and you know, they're trying to do this or that, and I, I think it's just entirely unhelpful. But I think that's the purpose of it is to be unhelpful. You you don't want there to be these coalitions forming of people bringing attention to these issues and posing a real challenge to the status quo. And I think that's why J Street, for instance, not to you know sing their praises all the time, but they are a kind of group that is both you know has a position. They are a Zionist organization, but at the same time are trying are not using that as a as a divisive term. They're not using it to exclude people. And um, I think that's what 
isn't well why why they tend to have trouble with the right wing in the Jewish communities because they see Zionism as more of a way to build walls rather than trying to, you know, have this identity, have this worldview, but at the same time be against injustice, be against the occupation. The very last thing I wanted to ask you about was, and this this is like far afield in some ways, but uh, you know, I was reading this New Yorker piece, and I think you shared it actually on uh, one of your social media pages. Uh, this interview that happened between uh, a journalist and the president of the Zionist Organization of America, uh, Morton Klein. And I guess you, you've had your opinions about Morton Klein in the past. I hadn't really um, known about his activism before, but after reading that interview, I was thinking, my God, this must be something out of the onion, but it wasn't. Um, no. And he was literally like very supportive of Donald Trump, pushing birther conspiracies, um, defending Trump, uh, right. you know, having dinner with this white nationalist, Nick Fuentes. Right. And I'm just I was wondering, what do you think about Morton Klein and uh, what does he say about where we're at right now? So the phenomenon, I think, is 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 something people should be aware of. So the Zionist Organization of America is a, is a group that's been around for a hundred years, right? It was founded in the in the nineteen, I would like to say, the nineteen twenties by uh, one of the founders was Louis Brandeis, who ended up serving on the Supreme Court and has the university named after him. Was generally speaking a liberal for its time, a liberal um, organization. At some point. I think in the 1990s, certainly by by the 2000s, you know, the organization was captured by these far right forces led by Morton Klein, but also, you know, in coalition with kind of the fringe right wing of the Jewish community that includes, you know, figures like, you know, who who ended up getting attached to Trump, people like David Friedman, who was the ambassador, and um, Daniel Pipes, who's a figure and based in Philadelphia who runs a think tank. Um, so these were kind of these fridge far-right actors, but they were able to take control of this organization that had this long, somewhat respectable history. But by now, at this point, after the last 20 or 30 years, the ZOA is really, it's considered the far, far, far right of, of the American Jewish community. And it's and it's been a source of embarrassment, I think, even for the center-right groups um, or the establishment organizations that have to sit around, you know, because Morton Klein is, they are a member of the Conference of Presidents, which is the umbrella organization of, of American Jews. And so they kind of have to sit there listening to him, you know, say all these bizarre are and crazy things because he's the head of an organization that was once respectable but no longer is. Um, but his, you know, his views are probably today supported. You know, center right conservative Jews, you know, in the era of Trump, have moved further to the right. And you know, if, if once someone could say his views represented ten percent of the Jewish community today, they probably represent twenty or twenty five, which is which is frightening. But it's also it's it's you know, when twenty five percent support it, there's seventy or seventy five that are quite disgusted by it. Uh, but this, you know, this interview that he did with with Isaac. Chutnier is is very typical of of his rhetoric that he's been doing. Um, it's probably since the ever since he became a public figure um, in the early nineteen nineties. What, what's going on with? I guess it, it's just confusing to me to hear a guy say, oh, "No, Trump, Trump isn't you know uh, anti-Semitic and and you, you know with uh, Charlottesville, he said there's good and bad people on both sides." He was talking about the statues though. 
like how does is there just a cognitive dissonance that that is going on with these people? I mean, I I'm I don't want you to have to psychoanalyze, but no, no, I, I mean, yeah. what's happening. The answer is yes. Like, and you also just have like you know, American Jews are Americans, and uh, and the United States is becoming more and more politically polarized, and so Jews who have publicly affiliated with the Republican Party support the Republican Party, even if they're privately uncomfortable with with Trump or whatnot, are still going to create these elaborate um, justifications. I think the issue with Warkind is that he happens to just be a far right extremist. I, I don't think he's, you know, strategically doing this. I think those are are his views. And, you know, he compartmentalizes it in that way. Um, I, I guess what I'm asking, though, is what why do these sort of overlaps happen between you know, um, far right Jewish people and like people like Trump, because you would think they're uh, totally at odds with each other. Right. I mean, like you have white nationalists that are seeing Trump and then you have Morton Klein singing Trump's praises. It would seem like they'd be at odds. So what like what do you think is going on there? Right. And they each they each think Trump only pretends to like the other side, right? So they each delude themselves in in, in thinking that they're the ones in charge of Donald Trump. Um, but I it, it Klein is a very distinct and, and bizarre figure just in, in in the way he operates and the way he he talks about other um Jewish organizations. And you had that and that was something that always irked me about the rise of Trump. It was also it elevated this portion of the American Jewish community that was always on the far right fringes of it. Like David Friedman would not be an ambassador in any other administration except for um, something run by Donald Trump. And not only because he had a personal connection to it, but because that worldview, that kind of very, very far right view that kind of really hates liberal Jews as much as they hate anyone else would would be elevated. Even yeah. with like you mentioned Daniel Pipes, and I, I seem to recall Pipes being like one of these um almost like the jihadis are coming type guys. Yes. No, that's exactly what he is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And he was I I I don't he wasn't in the Trump administration, but I think his kind of idea the ideas that he would support or his people or people or you know who would affiliate with his think tank or that part of the Jewish community was elevated during the Trump administration in a way they never have been before and hopefully never will sit from now on. So I just have to say, um, closing out here, everyone should read that New Yorker uh, interview because <laughs> that is the most surreal thing I've ever read. I mean, especially like at one point they start talking about the movie Anaconda. Martin, Martin Klein's <laughs> like, oh, I, I thought I was the only one that saw that because they talked about Ice Cube and apparently uh, Morton no, Klein's he, that was another thing that he did. Yeah, he after Ice Cube made some anti-Semitic remarks, Ward Klein just publicly met with him for some reason. I I don't I don't understand how that man's mind works. Um, well, the weirdest he, was the weirdest <laughs> thing was him, you know, just saying uh, going on about the birther stuff, and then you know I think Isaac said to him, "You don't have to do this to yourself. Like we're going to no, fact but, check you." <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's yeah, the, and, and the react, and that was another thing that kind of defines. Like, I think a lot of people group together, like the regular pro-Israel establishment organizations, like the AJC and the ADL, with the with the right wing, and that's not necessarily correct. And one of the issues that I think divides them was something like the Obama administration, where someone like Mort Klein was pretty much racist, right? Pretty much just viciously reacting to Obama the way the fringes of the Tea Party would and most of the Jewish
Jewish community, even the pro-Israel side, but would never touch the for the birther stuff for sure. That's like the fringe of the fringe. But for someone like Klein, that was the stuff he was reading. He got his news from Breitbart and Glenn Beck and, and all of that. That was that that's his universe. I, I should ask as well, um, and I'm, I'm sorry for keeping you so long. No, up, not at all. I, I but it's important me for me to ask this question at the juncture we're at culturally, which is, you know, we've been talking about uh, justice with regards to Israel and, and justice for Palestinians. Um, at the same time, we're seeing like this massive uh, spike in, in anti-Semitism. Oh, for a second. Oh, I was, I was saying, yeah. uh, on one hand, we oh. want to deal with these issues of uh, Palestinian justice for Palestinians and a, a, a better Israel, an Israel reflective of liberal values. But I think there's also uh, a concern here on the domestic front at home in the US of rising anti-Semitism. So the question that I have asked a lot of my um, guests that that are Jewish is how do we that are, that are Jewish and from a, a left perspective, I always ask how do we battle, you know, the Israeli far right and these far right elements like Morton Klein while also combating anti-Semitism. In theory, it shouldn't be very difficult. I think these are these are two th things that we should be able to do at once, and it's something that I certainly believe that I I do in in my life as a writer and and as somewhat active on this issue. But of course, the the problem is that the issue of anti-Semitism is used by supporters of the status quo to try to delegitimize opposition um, to the occupation and to and to the to the status quo in general. Um, and it's I you know if I was a, a non-Jewish activist on this issue I would you know be terrified to say anything because you know you're you're entering this kind of matrix of, of where you you know these your words are being plucked out and you know we had this discussion about the term Jewish supremacy is something that's you know if, if someone uses it you know in the context to describe someone like Ben Gvir, he'll be attacked or she'll be attacked because this term is also used by neo-Nazis and they may not have even been aware of that, right? That this is, you're kind of entering this, this, this conflict zone. Um, but it's, I, I think we don't have a choice, but to really, you know, attack both of these things. And, um, and I, you know, and, and of course, what another thing that I think people are a little bit less comfortable talking about is that there is some anti-Semitism in the pro-Palestine movement, both in the United States, I would say probably a bigger issue in Europe than it is in the United States, but it's, it's something that crops up both invert, both inadvertently and also purposefully. There are anti-Semites who attach themselves to this issue. Um, people I would, I, I'm not going to, you know, won't name any names, but who, who you know, use the issue of the Israel-Palestinian conflict to promote their anti-Semitism. I think we need to be very proactive in calling that out and making sure that they are not the face of this movement for change. Do you think too, um, do you think a, a lot of where the discussion should be going is maybe focusing more on uh, just human rights? Because uh, I, I recently, a, a while back, I spoke to uh, Zaha Hassan, who I think she wrote uh, a paper for the Carnegie Endowment uh, for Peace uh, with uh, Daniel Levy, uh, saying that we need to take a more human rights-centric approach to Israel-Palestine. Do you think that's maybe where activists should be heading? Because it seems like it's harder to to accuse people of anti-Semitism when they're focusing solely on the human rights issue. 
Yeah, of course. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that is the right focus to have it, not just to avoid the the accusation of anti-Semitism. I think it's it's the most productive and the most fruitful path forward. Um, and, and it's it's certainly a, a benefit that you're not talking about um, these you know issues of Zionism or anti-Zionism. I think that's what supporters of the status quo want. And I think that's sometimes a mistake people make on the left is they think they're making these strong structural critiques, like we're going to go right after the heart of, of Zionism they really don't know. They want that debate. They want to get you bogged down in these discussions of, you know, whether something is technically or not or anti-Semitic or not. But when we talk about issues of human rights, that's something that I think people who support the status quo would rather avoid. And that's, you know, even if that doesn't, you know, lead to the discussion or you want or to the issues of historical justice that I think many Palestinians are rightly concerned about and, and, and you know, legitimately pursue, it, 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 it hampers the discussion. I think if we focus on human rights and the injustices that are happening as a result of the occupation and other discriminatory practices by Israel, that's a much more productive path forward. And I think Daniel Levy and, and Zahusate are two people I very much admire. And I think they they are they're absolutely right that this is if we're looking for a discursive shift, it should be away from these these terms that have meaning historically, but I think when they're used today are used in ways to prevent rather than facilitate any sort of political action. It's interesting. Um, it brings to mind. I recently had a chance to interview uh, the Jordanian filmmaker Darin J. Salam about her uh, controversial movie uh, Farha, which is about the Nakba. But you know, when when I tried to talk a little bit about politics, I think her response was very interesting. She said, "We can talk about the abstraction and the politics uh, later. You know, what matters now is talking about human rights, and that does seem to be the direction everything has to go in at this point." Right. And and it's also because and I think it takes us out of this this hole where we're discussing specific political solutions, which I think are important, but they're also beside the point when we're talking about human rights abuses and current injustices. There are versions of the two, you know, the, the, a real two state solution and a binational state, I think, would each resolve the conflict and in, in a way that would satisfy a lot of these human rights concerns that we have. But they're not the front end of the discussion. I don't think we're in a place where we're, we have the luxury to have these debates um, as, as as enticing as they are and as as a participant in them. I, I don't see them as being very productive given the current political reality. Well, Abe, Silberstein, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work and what you're writing, uh, social media, anything like that? Sure. So I'm I'm on Twitter right now at Abe Silb, A-B-E-S-I-L-B-E. -E. I'm currently just I, I I do have my account on private, but I'll generally I generally approve most follower requests. I'm just given the current uh, situation at Twitter, and we'll we'll see how long that lasts and where I would. Um, create uh, another platform. I've also recently started a personal website, which is just my name, apesilberstein1word.com, where I mostly just link to my articles and kind of create this page where I might start putting up small posts there. Um, and I also, you know, if, if, if I occasionally do publish in places like Haaretz or The Forward or The Times Literary Supplement. Um, so I, I do, you know, my name does creep up in those in those places on occasion, but um, I, I, I hope to stay 
hope to stay on Twitter, hope that um, Elon Musk doesn't um, destroy it in the next couple of weeks. It seems that every week there's always this feeling that this is the end and that this is, you know, to to jump ship to one of these other Erzatz platforms that are that are being launched. That I I created some accounts on them, but I I I don't think they're as user friendly as Twitter. So let's 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 keep our fingers crossed that this won't uh, won't go away. Are you, um, but by any chance, uh, are you going to be, um, you used to have a podcast, I think. And I was wondering if that's just defunct now or not. I was it three. It three wasn't my podcast. Opinions? It wasn't okay. my podcast. So I was, I was, yeah, I, I, I was really recruited to that, uh, podcast to serve as kind of the, the liberal or left-wing, uh, Jewish voice. It was, it was kind of fun, but I think at some point, um, it, it was very difficult to organize because we all lived on different time zones and it was, but it was, I, People could look at the the archive of it. I think we recorded like fifteen or or sixteen episodes of it, but it was it was quite fun, and I liked um, talking to you. So the, this format or this medium is unused to it as as I am. I think it's something I've gotten a little bit better at. Hopefully, is there anything that uh, just we've been going an hour and forty five minutes, and I did not know that we would go that long. But is there anything you want listeners to get out of this conversation? What's the one thing? If one thing I would want them to get out of it is not to um, not to put themselves into rigid categories um, and to be open um, to you know you can have your position have a very strong position on on Israel Palestine or Zionism and anti-Zionism, but to to be curious to actually you know read these things even something as bizarre as a Morton Klein interview to actually you know get yourself in this headspace to be as knowledgeable as possible and then use that. Um, you know, take your your moral worldview or position. You know, state it very strongly, but don't silo yourself off. Don't rule out certain alliances or coalitions based on abstract values. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you again for coming on Parallax Views, Abe Silberstein. Thank you so much. Next up, Doctor Stephen Zunis returns to discuss how we can combat anti-Semitism while also addressing Israeli human rights abuses. Additionally, we will discuss Secretary of State Antony Blinken's comments regarding the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. All that and more in the conversation to follow with Dr. Stephen Zunis. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that is always worthwhile. Uh, when it comes to issues related to foreign policy, Israel-Palestine, uh, Morocco, and much, much more. Dr. Stephen Zunis, how are you doing today? Very good, thank you. So I wanted to have you back on the show because I think we're seeing a lot happening right now uh, in regards to Israel. Uh, we just had these elections, and it seems like the far right uh, has some victories when it comes to the Israeli elections. At the same time, over here in the U.S., uh, I think there are really legitimate concerns about rising anti-Semitism. You know, you have, you know, uh, the the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, uh, essentially pushing anti-Semitic lines with these white nationalist characters. Uh, what do you make all of this of all of this, and how how are we to talk about issues related to Israel and its treatment of uh, people in the West Bank while also combating anti-Semitism at home? In, in certain ways, it's the same phenomenon you know, in the sense that uh, it is a manifestation of this um, 
uh, nativist, uh, far-right kind of ideology we see both in the uh, United States and in Israel. In Israel, of course, the, the target um, is the uh, Palestinians and uh, the uh, very far-right uh, elements that want to uh, physically expel them from the uh, occupied territory or to more, more formally and officially impose an apartheid type uh, situation. Uh, these the people have uh, major roles in the Israeli government, and uh, generally they're all opposed to the Palestinians having a state of their own alongside Israel. Um, so we are talking about a very right-wing, uh, very right-wing government uh, coming to the fore there. And of course, in the United States, you have this kind of uh, of, of, of nativist far-right uh, distrust of the others, of, of the other. I mean, obviously, it's the same phenomenon that uh, that uh, that uh, fears Im Im immigration, uh, that fears uh, uh, sexual minorities, that um, uh, you know is racist, and of course, uh, you know, Jews have have, have always, uh, at least in Western societies and and some other parts of the world as well, have have been convenient scapegoats, especially in times of uh, of, of economic injustice and and the right. Uh, the the, what's implied in your question, of course, is is that um, is how you know people, especially on the left, can both uh, be you know, very frank about the nature of the Israeli government and U.S. support uh, for it, and the um, um, well, at the same time, uh, being you know very clear in our opposition to anti-Semitism here at home and being allies to Jews uh, here in the United States and around the world. So. In terms of talking about anti-Semitism right now, what do you think the, the main points we should be looking at are and, and how can we combat anti-Semitism? I think uh, understanding its manifestations and many, I think a lot of people on the left have a hard time really understanding how, how anti-Semitism works. I mean, part of it is that uh, that people on the left, uh, tend, we tend to look more at uh, uh, discrimination on, on economic terms. And Jews as a whole are not uh, uh, a, a poor minority, as are some uh, uh, minorities in, in the United States. Uh, they're not as wealthy as people act like they are either, but that's another story. Um, and it's all, and, and most, the vast majority of Jews are white, not all, but, but a, majority, a large majority. And as a result, we kind of have this, um, uh, the, 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 there's there's not the clear uh, understanding of this of this manifestations, I think, and in, in especially in the so-called microaggressions and the like. And I think the thing that's important, so, if we, so we need to understand a bit about how it works. And the, I think the way it works in certain ways is that Jews are often scapegoated. Uh, Jews are often blamed for society's ills. They are... Uh, um, Jews who are a relatively small subset of the ruling class are depicted as people who are actually a very influential uh, part of, of, of the ruling class. I mean, Jews are maybe what, uh, less than three percent of the U.S. population. Um, and if you but, you know, if you look at polls, they, they, they think you know, Jews are, are, are a much higher, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent or more of the of the country's elites. However, if you look at the, um, you know, the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, um, the, the uh, you know, whatever uh, elite groups you want, you'll find that Jews are actually not that slightly higher than their percentage of the overall population but but not but not really 
um, so you'll find Presbyterians and Episcopalians who who collectively are about the same number of Jews are more represented in the uh, in, in the elites, whether it be in Congress or in in um, in capitalist circles or whatever. And yet we keep hearing this idea that somehow it's 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 the Jews that are 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 controlling things or whatever. And that and and in a sense it, it's it's um uh I think Michael Lerner or somebody referred to anti-Semitism as a fool socialism. You know, the idea that you you have this kind of populist saying, hey, the little guy against the rich elites, but instead of looking at the uh, uh ruling class as a whole, uh you 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 end up targeting the small subset in the Jewish population. And of course, that serves the ruling class well, because you know, if you go after a minority instead of people who really have the power, uh that's um that makes it easier for them. And we see this in, in, in a lot of ways in terms of when we talk about Israel and Palestine. Why does the United States support Israel so much? Well, people say, oh, it's a Jewish lobby. You know, it's the, the, all, it's, it's, uh, the uh, APAC and, and the strong uh, you know, Zionist uh, uh, groups that uh, support the Israeli government. And But you know, a lot of this, but, but, but a lot of the arguments you hear, and, and I'm not denying that APAC and some of their allied political action uh, committees uh, um, you know, uh, do throw their weight around, have some clout uh, in, on, in the halls of Congress. I mean, there's no denying that, but but it's often exaggerated to the point of thinking that, hey, if it weren't for APAC, weren't for this uh, the Zionist lobby or whatever, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East would be uh, would support human rights, would support human uh, international law, would support arms control, would you know do all these good things. But it's like, where does the United States <laughs> but U.S. foreign policy, I mean, that's not the case anywhere, not anywhere. And, you know, yes, we, we support the Israeli occupation, but we also support Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara. Um, and in fact, the United States has actually formally recognized uh, Israel's uh, uh, Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara. The only territory that Israel's conquered we formally recognized is the Golan region of Syria. Um, similarly, we support Indonesia's occupation of East Timor. Um, we support South Africa's occupation of Namibia. I mean, and 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 of course, we send arms to all sorts of brutal uh, uh, dictatorships. I mean, the the Saudis have killed far more civilians with U.S. weapons in their bombing of Yemen than uh, uh, Israelis have killed Palestinians in their uh, bombing uh, bombings in Gaza. Um, and you know, the, the, I you go down the list that that uh, yes, I'm very very strong opponent of U.S. support for the Israeli government, of the arms transfers, of the occupation. But to pretend that it's because we, we have these, these uh, our, our president and our leaders in Congress really want to do the right thing, really want to support human rights, international law and arms control, but those Jews are forcing them to do so. I mean, that is where, that's that's the anti-Semitic piece. That's, that's the anti-Semitic piece. That's the piece that basically uh, you know, de denies the, 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 you know, it, it, that tries to shift uh, blame away from those who really have the power and foisting it upon a, um, a, a minority group. And uh, it's, it's, um, and, and, and so that this is the kind of thing that I think the, those on the left should be particularly uh, aware of. Now, most of the anti, I mean, there is certainly anti-Semitism on the left, uh, but the majority is, is actually coming from the right. And this is, 
very old school uh, kind of uh, a bigotry uh, that we've seen. I mean, the most horrific manifestation, of course, of course, being uh, Nazism and the Holocaust. Uh, but we've we've seen uh, anti anti Semitic. Uh, um, sentiment here in the United States. Uh, well, we, we see it with, not, not to interrupt you, but we see it with, uh, you know, Donald Trump complaining that Jews in the U.S. Uh, don't love Israel enough. I mean, he's treating Jewish people as a monolith. Right, right. And and, and here, here's here's the irony. I mean, certainly it's anti-Semitic to say that, um, you know, that, you know, to, 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 uh, to, to blame American Jews for these horrific policies of the Israeli government. Um, but uh, you know, you know, but uh, you know, similarly, they, well, what Trump and other other uh, people are doing in criticizing the Jewish left, you know, those who are, are who are critical of the Israeli government and its policies, you know, attacking them, and 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 claiming they're somehow not good Jews for for doing so. Yeah, that's that's very much a manifestation of anti-Semitism as well. I, I want to move into talking about. Um where the Israeli government said it. But on this issue of anti-Semitism, I, I think it can be difficult at times, especially when I talk to, um, say, some of my like Palestinian friends about it, because I think there is a sense that, you know, uh, that, that, you know, when you bring up anti-Semitism, um, I, I think some Palestinian activists, in my experience, are wondering, oh, are you trying to like weaponize this? Uh, are you weaponizing anti-Semitism uh, uh, against Palestinians. And I, I get I, I understand why some Palestinians can be defensive in, in the sense of, uh, you know, they may not be saying anything anti-Semitic, but they're often attacked with that label um, just for criticizing Israel. I mean, I, there, unfortunately, uh, anti-Semitism or the struggle against anti-Semitism has been weaponized by supporters of the Israeli government, uh, that uh, you know, people who argue that any criticism of, of, of Israel is not motivated about concerns for human rights, international law, uh, but uh, is out of bigotry against Jews. And it is true that uh, you know, Israel is, is the only Jewish state, so you know, people get uh, defensive about that. And you know, not just not just uh, not just Zionist Jews, but uh, a lot of other folks, including liberals. I mean, if there's only one black state in the world, um, and 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 it was doing some terrible things, um, that you could imagine that African Americans and 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 uh, some people on the left, you know, might be a little defensive if people started going on and on about the terrible things that government was doing, because you wouldn't really know, like, why are they, why are they, why are they saying it really? I mean, even even me, I mean, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm incredibly critical of Israeli policies. But if I walk into a room and there are a couple of people I don't know, and they're, one of them is going on and on and on about all the terrible things Israel is doing, um, even if I agree with everything they're saying, I have to wonder in the back of my head, why are they saying it really? Is it because they're concerned about human rights, international law, you know, justice, you know, peace uh, everywhere? Or are they finding excuse to go after the world's only Jewish state? So there's a kind of defensiveness I think a lot of people get around around this. Um, but uh, and but there's also you know very deliberate efforts uh, to try to silence dissent um, and to 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 uh, claim even legitimate uh, crit critiques of the uh, Israeli government or critiques of Zionism are are in inherently anti-Semitic. 
And you need to, uh, it depends on who's saying it. I think the vast majority of people who are concerned about the uh, uh, the fate of the Palestinians are doing so because this is the very same people who care about human rights elsewhere in the Middle East, elsewhere around the world. Uh, that uh, they, you know, many of the activists who are involved in Israel and Palestine now are the same people who are involved in the uh, movement against the Iraq War and uh, and, and and struggles for the uh, East Timor against apartheid South Africa in the wars in Central America. Depending how old they are, you know, there's that uh, it's you know, by and large uh, people are involved on this issue. The same reason they're they're involved on in, in any other issues, but uh, the. But this this effort to try to portray it as somehow uh, being about Israel being Jewish as is 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 is, to, is is completely disingenuous. Now, obviously, if you find people in the pro-Palestinian movement that are you, you, you're questioning their motive, motivations, or they say anti-Semitic things, they need to be called out and and immediately and and, and need to be marginalized and uh, and and everything else. And one of the problems, unfortunately, is because of so many false claims of anti-Semitism, uh, it's become almost a crying wolf phenomenon where um, it. it it, uh, it makes it more difficult for us to call out the real anti-Semites within the movement. But, um, you know, what's critical is to uh, underscore that uh, that uh, this is not uh, this is not about the fact that Israel is Jewish. It's about the fact that uh, that uh, Israel has invaded and occupied uh, neighboring countries. They have uh, engaged in ethnic cleansing. They are, are illegally colonizing occupied territory. They're engaging in a pattern of gross and systematic human rights abuses. They've imposed an apartheid type system, uh, and and you know th these are the issues that that. Uh, uh, that, that we're, we're concerned about now what would help people i think for it would be to um you know to, to make clear that uh, as as they as can that uh, this that they do are coming from a good place they are coming out of concern out of a, of a, a more general a piece of human rights concerns i've in fact I, for example i have a, a, a for divestment campaigns at colleges and universities trying to get their their institutions to uh, divest from companies that are supporting the Israeli occupation, like Caterpillar and, and uh, Motorola uh, and, and uh, Hewlett Packard and you know, companies like that. I would you know, say, well, why don't you also include the companies that are supporting the Moroccan occupation? That's the only other uh, internationally recognized foreign belligerent occupation other than an entire country. Um, and it would be an example to say, hey, this is not about Israel being Jewish, it's about it. At, uh, it's, it's it's because we oppose occupation, and you know. And, and similarly, if you're talking about stop military aid to Israel, we should also say stop military aid to Egypt. This is a country with sixty five thousand political prisoners. Very repressive country. I, I was going to add um, real quick to that. I I think another good example of what you're talking about is, you know, when we talk about some of the human rights abuses that happen in some of the Gulf states, um, we should talk about, you know, say. Uh, Qatari human rights abuses, but we should also uh, be sure to talk about Saudi human rights abuses. We have to sort of cover all our bases and understand, you know, that that there's multiple states that do human rights abuses yeah. against yeah, it, 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 very very much so. And and you know, I mean, the, I mean, people are moved to uh, 
be involved in uh, a particular cause for different reasons. Some people are really into to the Tibet. You know, some people are 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 really into Burma. Some people are, you know, I mean, you know, there, there are a, a lot of people who, for whatever reasons, have a particular passion about a particular country. And it's fine if, if Palestine is your thing, you know, to to be, uh, be involved with that uh, as well. But given the sensitivities around this, it is indeed important to, to emphasize where you're coming from and why. And that it is, um, that indeed the, um, United States is not only the um, by far the uh, biggest arms supplier of Israel; it's the largest arms supplier to these uh, brutal Arab dictatorships as well. And uh, both are wrong, and we need to be very clear about that. Yeah, and I was going to say, I, I think that um, I, I've had a number of uh, Palestinian and Palestinian American guests on that I think pretty openly uh, attack this issue from. The human rights perspective, it, it you know, they may have a personal stake in it because of their cultural legacies and heritage, but they really are. I think most people are attacking this issue uh, from a human rights point of view. Yes, and the um, being clear about the uh, uh, that this is a human rights issue is critically important, especially since the whole mythology around Israel is that oh, it's this. A great to progressive uh, democracy, and they uh, support the rights of women and 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 sexual minorities and all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, which is, which, um, but uh, it, the very the fact is is that uh, the, the, with the right wing coming to power the way it is, uh, not only are they getting a lot more conservative on the on these social issues, but even if you do have free democratic elections, you still don't have right to invade other countries. You still don't have right to. Uh, um, Impose separate laws depending on one's uh, nationality or or, or uh, religion. Uh, it's still wrong to um, you know colonize occupied territories. You know, we need to we need to be very very clear about about these 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 sorts of things. So, in terms of where the Israeli government is headed, uh, I've done a few shows recently about the elections. Um, you know, Netanyahu's incoming government and uh, some of these you know I, I would say pretty frightening characters like uh, Bezalel Smithrich and Itamar Ben-Giver. Um, what do you think about uh, just the religious Zionism coalition, the Netanyahu government, and where this could all be heading? Because it seems like we're at a very dangerous point. Yeah, we are at a dangerous point. I mean, the, the, these groups are, are, are some of these uh, groups are, frankly, are pretty fascist. I mean, these are, are folks who have openly called for the physical expulsion of, of Palestinians, uh, the uh, ethnic cleansing, um, you know, to, to finish the job that was done in, uh, in 1947, 48, 49, uh, during the creation of Israel. Uh, they um, have also um, been, uh, uh, been, you know, call, calling, uh, you know, you know, for the, the denial of, of other basic human rights. And there are already like 70 different laws between Jews and non-Jews in, 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 uh, in Israel itself, uh, not to mention the, the occupation. Uh, but the, the fact that you have to, uh, there are Jewish-only roads and Jewish-only uh, settlements, and you have to have a pass to go from one Palestinian town you know, to another. I mean, this really is an apartheid a kind of system already. And these folks are, are, are willing to make it uh, even um, 
even more extreme and to you know to to annex the to annex the entire territory they're also talking you know, talking about you know f- further codifying your discriminations against intermarriage against i mean i mean it, it, these this is these people are really really uh quite o- overt in their racism one a cabinet member you know actually was a big supporter of a Rook goldstein who was this uh um uh, Israeli-American terrorist who massacred 26 worshippers at, at a mosque in, in occupied uh, uh, um, Hebron um, back in the uh, 1980s, and I mean he's, he's, he sees this person as a hero. And and here 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 we come with the hypocrisy of the U.S. U.S. policy. The United States policy is that the Palestine Authority has even one member of their cabinet who does not support Israel's right to exist. That does not see UN Security Council Resolutions 242, 338 as the basis of negotiations, as the land for peace, and that um, doesn't renounce violence. Um, you know, the US will cut off all contacts, all aid, all anything to the Palestine Authority. And yet we now have an Israeli government coming before where the uh, a majority of that government. Uh, does not <laughs> opposes Palestinian statehood that uh, opposes uh, two four two three thirty eight land for peace and a number of, and and has some prominent uh, uh, cabinet members who are actually tied with these far right wing settler militia that have engaged in terrorism, you know the, the you know the the Jewish equivalent of Hamas if you will, and so and and so basically the Biden administration is saying oh we 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 will this this kind of extremism on the Israeli side uh, is is okay with us. I mean, we don't like it, but we'll keep we'll keep uh, we will not uh, um, stop sending you uh, you know four billion dollars of taxpayer funded uh, military aid. We will not uh, uh, we, we will continue vetoing UN Security Council resolutions demanding that uh, Israel comply with uh, international law. We'll keep having the same kind of policies regardless of of what what you do. But again. Any Palestinian that that we will not deal with any Palestinian uh, that uh, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't support uh, uh, that, that uh, Israel's existence on at least seventy eight percent of historic Palestine and and uh, I mean it's really uh, I mean the democracy and double standards is so flagrant. I, I guess I'm just curious, how do we explain U.S. just almost unconditional support for Israel? Um, What's behind this? Because I, I think you're skeptical of this idea, this idea that APAC just controls literally everything. So then if it's not if it's not a matter of APAC controlling everything, what is sort of driving uh, U.S. policy with regards to Israel? Is it just a strategic issue or? Well, um I mean, when whenever whenever a president has taken on APAC, the president's won. When you think about Eisenhower and the Suez crisis, um, uh, Kennedy in the water disputes, uh, Carter in the first invasion of Lebanon, Reagan in the AWACS uh, sale, uh, you know Bush, um, um, uh, Bush Senior in the loan guarantee, uh, Obama and the Iran, uh, you know nu- nuclear agreement. I mean, you know, th- uh, you know, 
no, no lobbying group has so much power that if the president sees something in the national security interest of the United States, uh, that again somehow uh, trump the, the president. I mean, you know, that they they did they do not have that kind of power, and and most of these really, I mean, APAC can pass these obnoxious resolutions by big margins defending Israeli atrocities or whatever, but you know these are mostly non-binding. There's not really a lot to it. I mean, I, I, but the, the real reason that motivates it is is indeed strategic. That uh, is the same reason we've supported other dubious allies around the world. I mean, the very the very fact that uh, quite appropriately uh, we we've been critical of uh, of the repression in Iran and that theocratic government, uh, but we send arms and have all this support for the Saudis that are even more misogynist, that are even more repressive, that are even more violent uh, than the 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 Iranians are, and you know, same reason. That we support all these right-wing dictatorships all over the world, but then we keep sanctions on Cuba, you know, and and you can go down the list. I mean, this is not like Israel is is the only country where the U.S. has this, has these hypocrisies and double standards. We will support our allies, uh, even when they do terrible things, if it is seen as our strategic interest. And Israel, and in, in the in the words of one former Secretary of State, is our unsinkable aircraft carrier. Um, that uh, you know our, our our allies could be overthrown in a coup in a revolution or whatever, but Israel's going to be be there to stay, and they're technologically uh, quite advanced. So they've worked with the military-industrial complex of the United States um, in the Israeli military-industrial complex. They've worked together in jet fighters, anti-missile defense systems, all sorts of things. Uh, they have. Um, CIA and Mossad collaborate intelligence gathering and and covert operation. Israel's funneled U.S. arms to to third parties that were politically difficult for the U.S. to do uh, deliberate uh, directly. You know, like the Nicaraguan Contras, the Guatemalan Junta, South Africa's apartheid regime. Um, more recently, various Kurdish militia and the uh, Colombian uh, and Colombian paramilitaries. Um, you know, you you. You you go. I mean, there are all, all sorts of ways that uh, that uh, you know Israel is supporting uh, U.S. interests. They trained U.S. forces in counterterrorism and counterinsurgency tactics uh, in, in Iraq and elsewhere. I mean, I can go down the list, but you know, they, I mean, there are certain you know people in the foreign policy establishment who are saying, well, this actually doesn't help U.S. interests in the long run because it's 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 radicalizing the Islamic world. It's turning Arab countries against us, et cetera, et cetera. But 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 the but the the consensus tends to be that uh, that that uh, Israel is in, indeed uh, playing this this important role. Now, what's what's a little concerning about all this is that in certain ways this parallels historic anti-Semitism, and by that I mean if you look back, say, medieval Europe, when you know the, the you uh, the ruling class, uh, you know, the ruling class would essentially make a uh, an agreement. With, with certain leaders of the Jewish community saying, we'll give you a degree of cultural and religious autonomy if you do the dirty work for us. That is the, the money lenders, the tax collectors, you know, that kind of thing. And um, and so when people would rise up against their oppression, the ruling class would say, oh, it's not us, it's the Jews that are persecuting you. And and people turn turn their wrath on the Jews. You have the pogroms and other ways of, of, of repression. And, it, um, and Jews would scatter to another country and other countries and the cycle would start all over again. And this went on for centuries, culminating, of course, in the Holocaust. And the idea behind Zionism was that if Jews could have their own nation state, they would be uh, they no longer be at the whims of the um, of the ruling class. But what what uh, what what we've seen is is is, 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 is the cycle is being perpetuated on a global scale. 
For example, in the British and French, want to get rid of, of Nasser and 56 and the Suez crisis, they sent in Israel. And in all these ways I've described and more, the United States has subsequently been using Israel. And what makes it even worse is that you know, I, I, I've talked to about a half dozen Arab foreign ministers and deputy foreign ministers. And I'm telling you, whenever I have ever I've asked something along the lines of why are you still so friendly with the United States, given what our policy has been in terms of the, towards the Palestinians? Every one of them said something along the lines of um, uh, your, 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 your ambassador, or your State Department guy explained to us that the Jews really run foreign, U.S. foreign policy and you can't help it. You know, the old, you know, anti-Semitic stereotype, you know, the rich cabal Jews behind the scenes running things. And I've even heard, you know, I've, I've talked to members of Congress, you know, or, or, or talked to a congressional aides saying, hey, your, your boss is real liberal on a lot of issues and human rights, international law. Why is he he's so concerned about, um, I'm sorry, why is he, he, he not concerned about Palestinians? Why is he supporting all these terrible things Israel's doing? And they'll tell me always off the record, oh, you know, he, he understands we need is those Jewish, the Jewish money to get elected. I mean, you know, it's like, it's, it's, you see this, this, this anti-Semitic stereotypes running again and again and again to uh, perpetuate, to, to, to try to justify a U.S. policy, which as I, I have noted in terms of other occupations like Morocco, Indonesia, elsewhere, like other uh, countries that engage in terror bombing, like Saudi Arabia or whatever, I mean, the kind of policies we pursue anyway. Uh, but in, in the case of, uh, of Israel, uh, people can always blame the Jews. I was just going to add to that really quickly, if I could. I, I don't dismiss everything uh, with regards to criticism of you know a lobby like APAC, but I also think that sometimes people sometimes forget. I mean, there's other lobby groups out there uh, that, you know, are, you know, um, tied to Saudi Arabia or tied to the United Arab Emirates. So there's a lot of lobby groups in D.C. Oh, yeah. And, 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 the, and the arms industry. Let's not, not forget the arms industry, you know, because, you know, for, for um, I mean, I, I, I talked to the former chief procurement officer of the Israeli Defense Forces, and he said that the, uh, the military aid the U.S. supplies has uh, nothing has very little to do with Israel's actual needs, but more to keep the uh, uh, assembly lines running uh, at the Lockheed Martin and other uh, arms manufacturers. Um, in fact, some of the joint projects have, have, have been real total boondoggles that have not supported uh, Israel. And Israel often has to spend two or three dollars on, on training personnel and spare parts for every dollar of U.S. military aid they get. So, you know, it, it's, um, you know, the, the, the and, and, and when the United States does you know, provide Israelis arms, these uh, oil rich Arab states that can 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 pay cash will you know try to get more to uh, to to to, uh, to to counter that. In fact, I remember there was this letter that was signed by 76 senators. And um, this is way back uh, not, not long after the Oslo Accords, when when. Uh, there's actually real prospects for Israeli-Palestinian peace. And they said, despite this progress, we need to increase aid to Israel. And the only reason they gave in that page and a half uh, letter was just that was was a dramatic increase in procurement of arms by Arab states. And nowhere did it mention that 80% of those ar new arms were also coming from the United States. I mean, there, 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 there have been calls periodically for an arms moratorium in the entire Middle East. And... And Israel's agreed to it for obvious reasons. They're by far the most powerful country, and they're the only country that has a strong domestic arms industry. But the U.S. has blocked it. We've opposed it because we want to keep the arms flowing. And uh, so, yeah. So I, again, I was going to say, I mean, 
that you know Saudi Arabia buys a lot of U.S. arms. I think they're one yeah. of our biggest uh, clients. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is yeah, this is ridiculous. I mean, it, it's um, it's the same uh, actors we see in other areas. The the the, the arms industry, military industrial complex. Um, you know, and back when the U.S. gave more direct economic aid, you know, it was almost the exact uh, amount of what Israel owed uh, U.S. banks in interest uh, for um, you know, loans for other weapons procurement. You know, so here, so so-called U.S. aid to Israel. You know, eighty percent of it goes to U.S. arms manufacturers, and 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 much of the economic aid went to U.S. banks. But who do we blame? Oh, the Jews are taking your money. Oh, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The classic, classic anti-Semitic scapegoating. Before we start closing out, I did want to ask, uh, what kind of pressure uh, can we apply to maybe, um, you know, deal with with some of the uh, human rights abuses that. Uh, are committed by the state of Israel, because it seems like what you said earlier, um, you know, that Israel is seen as a vital ally. And now, you know, uh, I think there may be people in D.C. that think that's even more true as, you know, Saudi Arabia and some of the Gulf states are are maybe being seen as more unreliable, especially in light of uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So it seems like it may be even harder uh, now to push for you know, reform when it comes to Israel and uh, dealing with human rights abuses by Israel. H- how do we apply pressure at this point? Well, I, I think one reason is that uh, more Americans than ever are um, oppose unconditional support for the Israelis, including unconditional military aid. I mean, it's close to uh, 70, 80 percent of Democrats now, a majority of American voters uh, overall. Uh, and um and 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 indeed, and and having this far right government come to power, I think you know makes it uh, even clearer that this is not the Israel that a lot of people of my my generation and slightly older, uh, you know, remember, you know, of the uh, uh, social democratic, you know, progressive uh, Israel, the Paul Newman and Exodus kind of, you know, uh, idealizing. I mean. I mean, even that was was over idealistic. It, it missed out on some important things, but uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's this is not. Yeah, and in certain ways, you could have said you could have said some years ago, Israel was relatively progressive uh, uh, outside their treatment of the Palestinians, but but you can't even say it say it's progressive by almost by any measure right now, really. And the uh, and the oppression is getting worse and worse and worse. Indeed, the more oppressive Israel's become, and the stronger the military advantages become, the more the U.S. aid has flowed, which again underscores it's more for advancing U.S. strategic interests than than uh, protecting Israel. <laughs> um, so I do think uh, we we uh, th- th- this is uh, this is actually actually a good time because uh, I mean especially I mean next to LGBTQ issues I don't, don't know any issue where political attitude and age parallels so exactly the younger people. People are far more skeptical of uh, U.S. Uh, support for uh, uh, for the Israeli government. So I, I do think this this is a good time. Unfortunately, um, you know the the Democratic leaders in in, in Congress, um, uh, um, Chuck Schumer in the Senate and Hakeem Jeffries in the House, are fanatically uh, uh, pro-Israeli government. I mean, they have they have uh, attacked Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and UN and others who've reported on human rights abuses. They ruled out conditioning military aid. They defended Israeli war crimes. I mean, they're really out of sync with the rank and file of the Democratic Party. So we definitely have our, our work cut out for us. But um, 
And Biden, of course, has 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 is very much in that camp as well. Um, so uh, it, it's 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 a struggle. But you know, let's remember that um, you know, uh, Democrats originally uh, supported the Vietnam War. Democrats originally opposed sanctions against South Africa. Uh, Democrats uh, originally uh, um, supported U.S. intervention in in, in Central America. Uh, but uh, we uh, we were able to to turn uh, turn things around, and I think we can turn things around on this issue as well. Real quick, because it, it had cut out for a, a moment there. Uh, you were saying, I think that, you know, uh, amongst Americans, there is uh, a lot more questioning of unconditional support for Israel. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, 80% of, of Democrats and uh, a, and something like 58 or something like that percent of Americans overall um, believe that U.S. aid to Israel should be a conditional on, uh, on human rights, international law, making peace, that sort of thing. And um, and indeed, and the vast majority of Americans want a viable two-state solution. And interesting, interestingly, polls also show that Americans, the majority of Americans, believe that if there cannot be a viable two-state solution, there should be a a, a a binational state in all of Palestine with equal rights for both peoples, as opposed to uh, the current kind of Jewish supremacy Israeli occupation like there is now. So um you know the 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 tide is definitely turning you know towards a more uh democratic and 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 less racialistic uh less ethnic chauvinist uh kind of a view towards the conflict there. And and I think that will eventually um uh show itself in, in politics, but it's, it's, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be, be some years before we get to that point. I just had two more questions. The first was, um, you know, I, I noticed you used that word Jewish supremacist. Um, and, you know, I've seen horrible people like, you know, the David Dukes of the world use that term uh, as well. But I think when you're using it, uh, or just even, you know, left-wing Israeli activists I've spoken to use it, uh, I, it it's hard to deny that you know, uh, figures like Itamar Ben-Giver do seem to have an ethnic supremacist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're basically saying that, that Jews have more rights than other people. And uh, uh, no, no one should have more rights than other people because of their ethnicity or or uh, or, or religion. And um, the. Um, I mean, for, you know, for 40 years, I, I, I push the idea of a two state solution, but uh, the continued colonization and you know, land and uh, and the imposition of an apartheid type system, you know, that has gotten me to wonder whether that's still possible, and whether we do need to talk about some kind of binational state that guarantees minority rights. Um, but you know that that but but you know the the, the thing is is that the um, what what we're also seeing this is very important is that um, even though Israel has been going more and more to the right, American Jews have been going in the opposite direction, uh, especially among younger Jews. Uh, fewer and fewer American Jews support the Israeli government, and an increasing number of young American Jews are even questioning Zionism altogether. And so, that, you know, we, so we're seeing a lot more pluralism within the uh, uh, Jewish community, both among more. Not, not to interrupt you, but is that like a, a slow process? Because I'll still hear that, you know, the majority of American Jews um, are highly supportive of Israel. I'll hear numbers thrown around, but it does seem like, you know, in terms of younger people, it's changing. It, like what? What are what are the actual statistics? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, from from I don't have them off off the off the top of my head, but um, that you know the importance of Israel to young American Jews is much less than it was 
to uh, to their parents and 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 grandparents. Uh, as I say, many do not see, do not particularly identify as as Zionist, but but also even among those who are Zionist, polls show that most Jews are closer to J Street, you know, uh, than APAC. That is, you know, support for uh, Israel but opposition to the occupation. And so, you know, the um, uh, it, it's um, you know, so we are we are we are seeing uh, a, a pretty pretty significant shift. I mean, I, I've I've taught. You know, I've taught uh, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for like uh, f- uh, forty years now, and um, I, it's, it's, I used to have to bend over backwards to make sure people heard the Palestinian narrative because I assume most of my students were already familiar with the Israeli narrative. Um, nowadays, it's, it's it's just the opposite. I mean, you know, it is it, quite quite remarkable the 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 shift in. Uh, and an opinion uh, that we're that we're, we're seeing now, um, and you know, I, I think that uh, you know we're another generation removed from the Holocaust. Uh, you know, Israel is not seen as that plucky little country fighting the Arab hordes, but they're see, seen as this uh, brutal uh, occupier and um, against the Palestinians. And and so I think there, you know, there there really are some some quite uh, quite uh, uh, um, uh, Clear shifts, and again, I'm sorry I don't have the statistics off the top of my head, but as someone who's talked about this before, I mean, just be on radio talk shows and and other things. I mean, the the the, 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 the it's a really really different uh, ball game than it was uh, a couple of decades ago. So just to close out, I had to mention this uh, in closing. Um, you know, Secretary of State Blinken uh, just appeared at APAC and gave a speech. Uh, I know you've had some thoughts on that speech. Uh, what were your takeaways from it? What were the issues with it? Where did Blinken maybe get things right? Where did he get things wrong? Well, I, I think um, um, I think that the um, you know he he, he did um, try to he, he said the right things in terms of supporting a two state solution, um, but uh, you know he. He, he also said things like uh, condemned the uh, BDS movement for singling out Israel. Now, the BDS movement was established by hundreds of Palestinian uh, NGOs. I mean, who else does he think is occupying them? Of course, they're going to talk <laughs> single out Israel. The other ones, this is a country that, that's occupying them. Um, and he, he all, but, but the trouble with Blinken and, and Biden is that they say, oh, we're for a two-state solution, but we – we recognize Israel, but not Palestine, and we oppose in the Palestinians seeking recognition from any, any any countries. We oppose the United Nations from getting involved. We will not pressure Israel through military aid or other means to 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 comp- compromise. We oppose armed struggles struggle by the Palestinians, but we also suppose, oppose nonviolent movements like BDS. Um, we the only way uh, there there can be a two state solution is through direct negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians, even though the Israeli government has categorically ruled out a two state solution. So you know, I, I mean, I, I, I so, so you know, so so, so it's, it's, for me, it's, it's less important what you know, Blinken said about you know a two state solution and that kind of thing, as more as what, what are the actual policies and the actual policies that, is that the United States. Uh, is, is making a two-state solution impossible. Well, Stephen Zunas, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? And uh, do you have anything that you're working on that you'd like them to know about? Well, you can uh, check out my website, uh, 
stevenzunas.org, stevenzunas.org. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it needs a bit of updating, but uh, you can find a lot of my material there. Also, my latest book, uh, co-authored with Jacob Monday, Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution. It talks about the other occupation that people are less familiar with, but also a very important one. You can find information about that as well on my website. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Dr. Stephen Zunis and journalist Abe Silberstein. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.